G'day everyone, welcome to the Talking Leadership Podcast. I'd like to introduce everyone to Paul Edwards. Paul, how are you going? Eric, great to be here. Uh, formerly the host of Influencer Networking Secrets and now the host of the Overcoming Reluctance Podcast and happy to join on here and Talking Leadership with you and uh, breaking down for leaders how central it is to be able to deal with people as above and ahead of any sort of technical skill you have as you ascend up the ladder of leadership. Uh, brilliant, Paul. Look, and, f- and for those that are listening, Paul is also the CEO and founder of the Reluctant Thought Leader. Can I get you to introduce our guest today, Paul? Cameron Hall is a very dear friend of mine going back to the summer of 2018. We met at a mastermind group in Toronto. We were both rookie entrepreneurs. Knuckleheads is the way we usually like to describe ourselves at the time. Struggling to figure everything out, barely treading water, in my case, not even making any money at all, and yet throwing ourselves into it with abandon, jumping off into the deep end and learning to swim as we went, as we sunk down to the bottom before we rose back up. Ever since then, we've kept up a friendship. We talk weekly, almost every week on Fridays, and we have built each other up and helped each other see things that weren't there that we couldn't see by ourselves. And we now are fellow members of another mastermind called Iron Sharpens Iron. So we see each other in person about twice a year in Nashville, Tennessee. And over the last several years, one of the things that's really impressed me about Cam is hearing all the stories about his journey in various roles in leadership, particularly as a vice principal of the largest public school in the city of Lethbridge, Alberta, where he lives. He also was the creator and founder of a fitness brand called Fight the Dad Bod. And he now is the founder and creator of two different coaching programs. One is called Impact to Influence, where he mentors business leaders. The other is Dad's Making a Difference. And this is aimed at particularly entrepreneurial fathers who really want to make a strong impact on themselves, on their families, on their businesses, and on the world around them. So Cam, great to have you on the show. Cam, thank you for joining us. Let's uh, let's get started on the podcast. So over to you, Cam. Thanks for having me, Eric and Paul. It's good to see you guys. Mate, thank you for joining us. Can you give us and the listeners a bit of a sense of why you believe communications are important for you in your daily life, work life, however you want to catch that, mate? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to leadership, my experience varies. So I started off in education 15 years ago as a teacher and then quickly moved into school administration. I got my master's in leadership in 2013. And through that, took a, a turn in my career that I definitely found the value in communication. Uh, communication as a leader, communication as a follower, as part of a team. So moving into administration took me as a vice principal in an elementary school at first. And I I transitioned to a high school where I've been the vice principal of that high school, which this isn't to add significance to it, but adds context to it. The high school that I work in is the largest high school in our in our city. And what that brings is a larger staff. So we have just under 170 staff in our building. And when you're working with 170 people, communication is key to keep people on track, keep people uh, connected and on the same page. Now, outside of my profession, I am an executive leadership coach for emerging online CEOs. And so I work with the when I say online emerging CEOs, I'm working predominantly with online coaches who are now expanding their businesses, bringing on team members, and who have never been able to navigate the idiosyncrasies of leading a team conversation or having an interview or navigating fierce conversations. And so I'm an executive coach with them to help them navigate those things. And communication is one of the keys in, in which we we target and what we focus on. That's an interesting combination. Before I hand over to Paul to continue the discussion, I, I have a, a question or two, if you'll indulge me. You, you work professionally in the education system and thank you for educating our next generation. And then you, well, moonlight's probably not the right word, but you also coach professionals in, in that space that you just discussed then. How do you draw on one experience versus the other to help you with your coaching? Because because I, I have a little bit of an insight. And I'm, when I say little, I mean little in that in the high school that my sons 
attend, well, not my eldest, he's now at university studying to be a teacher. I understand that the, the education space is quite a involved hierarchical thing. And so how, how do you deal yeah. with that being in the profession that you're in? And how does that translate to what you do outside of the school context? I'll, I'll just shed some light on our how our education system is set up here. So I am based. I'm based in Canada. I'm based in Alberta, and in each one of our provinces, that the education system is governed by a separate body within each of the provinces. So what you see in British Columbia in their education system might differ a little bit from Alberta, and so on. And so being based in Alberta, teaching is unionized. Uh, teachers are part of a union. In Alberta, administrators are also part of that union. And so what that creates is more of an equal an equal level playing field, if I was to say it that way. In British Columbia, for example, administrators are not part of that union and it becomes the conversations a real us versus them type conversation in that environment. I don't see my position as an administrator in our high school as any more important or any higher on a ladder uh, than the teachers I work with. I had a conversation with a colleague. I'm actually in full transparency. I took a leave and I'm on leave right now because I was navigating the complexities of where to go in my life as a middle-aged man and, and taking my passion for leadership. And so I was having a conversation, but with a colleague last week who we had bumped it to, into each other in the community and he asked how I was doing. And in that conversation, I could see that he was, he was in a tough spot. He was hurting a little bit. Any of the world events in the last two years and current events, they have had to navigate some very intense conversations in classrooms of kids who come in with varying backgrounds and, and parents and, and viewpoints. And what I said to him was, you know what? Part of being administration is dealing with all the stuff, like all the heavy things that come into our school and into our office from our community, working with stakeholders, parents. And I know I'm going to step into it some days. I know something hard is going to come across and I can prepare mentally for that. I almost expect that I'm going to enter into an area where a fierce conversation or strong communication skills are necessary where a teacher walks into a classroom and this might be the same there. And even though I'm in administration, they have a much more difficult time navigating their day because at any point in time, they're in front of a class where in our school, class sizes are almost pretty much 40 in every class. They're looking at a classroom of 40 teenagers and at any given time, one of those teenagers could ambush them with some type of comment or question where they're put on the spot and they feel like one that like, how do, how am I going to appropriately respond to this? So that Cam doesn't hear about it. Right. Mm. And yeah. I, they just need to know that I have their back. Right. So in administration, and here's the parallel, I'll get back to your question. Here's the parallel between the two things that I do. I have a passion for connecting with people. I have a passion for helping people navigate through problems. In my profession, it's one way. I've been a coach for a long time. I did. I have a business called Fight the Dad Bod, which is separate from all this. Called it's a nutrition coaching business. I was passionate about it as a young dad, and I started that off. And I found that I thrive in building relationships. I thrive in having open conversations and getting to know people. And through that, I was like, you know, I could take this passion I have and this background in leadership and communication development and take it into what I've seen in my own experience, helping online coaches and other executives strength in this area. Because communication, it doesn't matter where you are, right? Communication is that it's essential for developing and nurturing relationships. And when you enter into any situation with another person and you keep that as the center focus that I need to build an effective relationship and identify comfort versus discomfort in this, in this time, there's a lot of parallels, no matter where you're interacting skills that I use in the school or skills I use with my coaching clients or skills that I use in the airport when I'm dealing with, dealing with maybe there's somebody in line in front of me who's having a tough day and they're letting the person behind the counter know, I feel more than comfortable entering into a conversation with that person to kind of help that situation more or less. Paul, over to you, mate. Yeah, I was thinking there, one of my favorite scenes that, that I think it really exemplifies the, what you have to have in today's environment in situations like what Cam's describing there comes from, oddly enough, from a James Bond movie. And there's this scene in the movie Casino Royale, the first Daniel Craig one, where you know he's broken into M's apartment and she comes in and she's livid with him because he's caused this international kerfuffle. But I invite anybody listening to look this up on YouTube. You can find it anywhere because she throw, throws the book at him, right? She's ready to, to 
cut him and fire him as a as his first assignment as a double O agent and all that. And you watch the difference, the word count between her and Bond, right? He says almost nothing, but he's not ignoring her or trifling with her. He's taking her seriously, right? He's making eye contact. He does speak, but he doesn't speak much, right? And he's mostly listening to what she's saying and letting her get it off her chest. And I, I immediately flashed back to that scene, Cam, as you were talking, because I was thinking, if I were in that situation, now I'm, you know, when it comes to my opinions, if I'm not careful, I can be a pretty volatile person myself. And so I really have to, this has become like priority number one is to just not talk as much as I used to, <laughs> you know, in just about any situation, let people get what's on their chest out. And very often the mere sense that they have somebody is actually listening to what I'm saying mm -hmm. and not interrupting me and not second guessing me and not cutting me off and not prescribing, you know, fixes that are not equal to the task, right? But they're just listening. It's some of the greatest therapy that you can provide as a communicator and as a leader. For what that's worth, that's, that's, where, that's where that took me. You just brought up a couple of really important points about conversation. First, when you're giving the analogy from the movie, the analogy from the movie, think about the observation, like what's happening in that scene. Mm -hmm. You know, whether we enter into a conversation with a colleague, with a friend, a family member, we need to observe what's going on first. Like mm -hmm. how, how is this person reacting? What are they showing me? What does their body language say? What are the antecedent events that led to this? Am I, what am I aware of? What don't I know? And we start to ask ourselves these conversations as this interaction is beginning to take place. Paul and I have had this conversation before. And, you know, one of the things when I'm entering into a hard conversation or I get blindsided or somebody bursts through my office door and it's just at 100 miles an hour and they're, the temperature's hot and they're going, you know, people want validation. And validation doesn't always mean that you're the one who speaks. Mm -hmm. You know, validation, validation can mean the act of listening. It can mean just being a witness to what's going on, acknowledging that you understand or acknowledging that you hear what they have to say, and then accepting that you might not have something to say in that, in that moment. You might not know what to say, but this is also powerful in, in parallel to leadership skill and leadership development in that leadership isn't always knowing. There no. is great power in leadership and not knowing. And when you enter into a con leadership conversation, not knowing, it creates an opportunity to have a conversation with someone where you can really like flesh out the conversation and come to a mutual understanding. Yeah. Cam, you and I were talking earlier today. This is for everybody listening. This is the second podcast that Cam and I are on in this recording on the same day. So I was on his show this morning and we were talking about how leadership is often not knowing what to do and telling people to do it. And all of a sudden they say, yes, master. And they obediently go along. No, it's not like that. It's in fact, it's, it's getting them to tell themselves to do it because they know and understand it's the right thing to do. It's the expectation, right? All the variables that go into that. The bottom line is what you're trying to do is activate that inner compass within them that tells them that I've got to do this. I've got to respect. I've got to show. I've got to be, you know, live and, and conduct myself with honor here. I've got to, these things need to get completed. And I simply don't, it's simply non-negotiable if, you know, if we want the positive to continue. Otherwise, it, it, things degenerate. And when you've instilled that in somebody that you are in leadership over, you have just multiplied the amount of leaders in your organization. Now there's two of you, right? Now there's another person thinking the same way, thinking the right way, and but bringing their own unique personality to bear on that, which multiplies the effectiveness that you can have. You've both helped to answer and, and thankfully... I didn't have to spell it out because you, you both are very good at the um, explaining what good communication is. The good, the bad, and the ugly of it, you've expressed that in the examples that you've given because communication can go bad very quickly if you as the listener decide to, for example, go to solution making immediately. And that, that's my problem. My default setting is solution here are the solutions like someone comes at me with a problem instead of listening and maybe sitting back and going maybe i don't know every damn thing i go into yes eric has the the right solution for you and it's worse i think uh, what i think about this with my with my wife when she has an issue she she just wants me to listen but i go into here's the solutions because I'm, in some ways when you do that and i've only realized this as as i've, I've gotten on in some years that going to a solution means you haven't listened really listen to the problem you just want to get this out of the way so that you can do something else and that i think people pick up on that very quickly and i in defense of those of us particularly blokes 
they go to solution focus. I don't think it's done with bad intent. I think that's the easiest thing to do because then you don't have to think about what what is the deep dive into the problem that I'm being presented. And that, that I think is a poison when it comes to communication. Now, I'm, I've used a personal home-based example, but I think it translates, and this is to, to both of you, I guess, for a comment. In the world of work, is that a key problem that affects good communication is people just want to get to solutions to just get the day out of the way. Does that, does that ring true for both of you? I might start with Cam first. It, it does ring true. I think that happens often. I've had many conversations where a colleague or a coach that I'm, that I'm working with and consulting with will come to me and I just give them the answer. And I have this, I have this piece of paper in my office with all these like key reminders for me. So when I'm entering into a conversation, caring first always, because, you know, if you act with fairness and respect and integrity, and you have this as a filter where you're caring for other people and you're showing empathy, and that's your filter for any conversation, then you can handle it. And then you can look back and say, oh shoot, I just was solution-based. I wasn't, I wasn't adding to that conversation. I actually shut that conversation down. They don't need me to give them the answer. They want to have a conversation so that they can formulate the answer on their own. And they're looking to run it past me to see if in my experience, I feel that it would be effective or not. And I can give them honest, genuine feedback. So comms is a process, not the end in of itself. Is that what you're is that where it's we're a going? Process. Yeah, it's okay. a process. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You get, you need to let curiosity in. You know, yeah. you need to let curiosity come up in conversation. If you go into solution base, let's go back to solution base. Somebody comes to you with a question, and you're a leader of a small business, or you're in education, or whatever you're in, and somebody comes to you with a question, and you just offer a solution right away. It's a it's a little bit dismissive. It's saying that. You come to me because I know better and because I know better, I'm going to tell you what to do. And then you've actually taken the power out of their opportunity. You've done that to them instead of with them. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you have curiosity and you ask questions and you're like, you're really processing through and listening to what they're saying, you now bring that into the conversation. You're doing that conversation with them. And a, a with conversation is always way more impactful than the two conversation. Yeah. Same thing. Again, we were, we were touching on that earlier today. And the thing that I was thinking of, I think, Eric, this is a, you're right. This is a problem for men. And Cam and I were talking about the, the, the masculine nature, right? Is to solve problems, break through blocks and break to freedom on the other side. And I think this is why we're given the feminine nature because that doesn't compute with them. Right. And this is not to get into is one gender one way and one gender the other. No, I'm saying in every conversation, in the conversations the three of us have, somebody adopts the masculine part of the of the conversation and somebody adopts the feminine can be for one exchange and then we flip-flop, right? And the next time it's somebody else is holding the masculine and someone else is the feminine. The point is the feminine is is looking much more for the flow of positive, affectionate affirming language that believes in that person. And so what I've had, what I've had people tell me in conversations I've had is I feel seen by you. I when I talk to you, you don't come at me with this that don't go do this, go do that. You just start you just I uh, you ask me one question and I spend a paragraph or two answering it and then you ask me another question. And the reason I do that is because as a professional communicator, I'm so frustrated many times when I do communicate the obvious answer to someone and it doesn't sink in, right? And so I said, well, then I'm not going to waste, sometimes you only get one shot. I'm not going to waste that um, even though I'm right. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to play with being wrong or if I know the answer. And as you pointed out many times, I don't really know the answer. I think I do. But that doesn't mean I do. That doesn't mean that's actually what is required here in contact. You approach any any form of communication, particularly when you're a leader, is about um, if you're only if you're only going to take a solutions focused approach, you will miss out on the context of the particular conversation. And if your subordinates don't feel heard or validated, as Cam you used that word, and I, I like that as a as a way to express this, is if I don't think my boss gives a crap about 
about what I'm doing or how I'm feeling, then it can be potentially poison for the working relationship. And if you magnify that, can we use the example, you've got 170 people that, that report to you. If you poison that well, then it makes your job extremely difficult to do, um, irrespective of any good that you might do after the fact. And I, I understand as well that it, the human difficulty of managing a team that big, there are going to be some limits to what you can do because you don't have the time in the day to talk to everyone in a deep dive way every day because you've got to get your work done. So I, I, I get that. And this segues into the, the, the other area we'd like to talk to you about, Cam, is is communication fundamentally a critical leadership skill in your view? Yes or absolutely. no, or somewhere in between. Yeah, absolutely. Communication, you know, when we talk about building effective relationships, fostering, you know, a learning environment, whether it's in your business or at school, whether it's building leadership capacity in others, navigating the, the fierce conversations, you know, managing, managing the organization. So all the numbers side of it, all of that, all of that requires an ability to communicate. Um, I don't think many of us know successful leaders who aren't good at communicating in one way or another. I just read a book, Be Exceptional, uh, Joe Navarro. And he talks about five traits of exceptional leaders, five traits of exceptional people and communications in there. Um, he talks about um, observation, self-mastery, communication, a psychological comfort, taking action, maybe not in that order, but those are the five that he speaks of. But communication is huge in that we're human beings and we're social creatures. And if we're unable to build relationships with each other through proper communication, observation, you know, taking action, like I just said, then, then you're, missing the, you're missing the point. It's going to be really hard to lead if you're not able to communicate. The longer I do leadership and the longer I'm around leaders, the, your technical skill competence obviously is important. It would be terrible for me to ask a, a client to sign on with me as a, as a ghostwriting agency if I didn't know how to use spell check and get basic grammar and spelling right. That, that would be a serious, seriously poor offer for which I would take money if I were to do it. So so it's not that competence isn't important and it's not that you don't need to be able to speak authoritatively about whatever technical thing you're working on, whether it's teaching or writing or building a building or you know laying pipe or pouring concrete. I don't care, right? You, you have to know how to do it. But, but when you get right down to it, an awful lot of tasks are duplicatable to a to, to varying degrees. Some of them are 100% duplicatable. If it's engineering or, you know, matter related, they can often be, it can often be done a thousand times a day. But dealing with a human being is not like that because no two human beings are exactly alike. And so you have to be able to not only communicate well, you have to be able to communicate well with this person when that person is present versus when that person is absent. And that's, that's the variables just go out the window. That's why so few people are good at it, I think. That's why I, I'm in the business and I'm not good at it. Not as good as I'd like to be. I'm better than I used to be. I still find myself flabbergasted. I'm like, I spoke plain English to this person. I, if I watch a video of myself speaking to that person, I don't see tension or anxiety or shiftiness or anything, but they still don't trust me. Why? Why? Well, because I wasn't speaking their language in the right context at the right moment. That's what's so hard to get about this business. It's not the technical skill with the language. You got something, Cam? Just to piggyback on what you're saying, let's think about business for a moment. If you're starting a business and you have a real business, so you're not exchanging time for money, a job, but you have a business you want to build and you want to scale, you have a team. And that team needs to buy into your vision. You have a vision when you started it off, like this is our mission, this is our vision, this is what we're going to do and we're going to accomplish. But your team needs to know that vision. And you need to be able to communicate that vision with the team so that it can carry on without you. And you need to also show through your actions how that vision looks in practice. I have a note here. It just says, you know, leading with vision and being a visionary leader isn't being inspirational. There's a difference between being inspired and being inspirational. If you can communicate clearly with your team, your shared vision, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. People can be inspired to buy into that shared vision. But if you come in as Mr. Hey, I'm the boss. Look at me. I got all the answers. I'm solution-based. And I'm going to inspire you and be inspirational. You're going to find that people will actually withdraw from you. 
one, they're either just not going to like it and it rubs them the wrong way. Or two, they'll be like, I will never be able to measure up to what he just expected of me. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to hide over here, stay quiet and do my job. Right. And that's, that's not as a business leader, you want, you want to hear from people. You want to hear what's going on behind the scenes. You want to be right there alongside them. And so success in leading is found through clear communication and inappropriate action. One observation, gentlemen, and this is around if we had the process of good communication down pat, we would have no need for coaching in this area and there'd be a lot less work for you guys going forward because that this is an ongoing issue for leaders, which begs the question with programs that state that they provide leader development, universities making claims that they provide leadership development and have courses that are called leadership um, master of business, you know, your MBA, PhDs. I don't think there's enough attention paid to basic communication. And on this podcast, I interviewed a a university academic in um, Melbourne, uh, Victoria, sorry, that does science communication. She went from being a researcher to just wanting to help others understand what good basic science communication was. And what triggered her to do that was not that she wanted to create a new life for herself as a consultant. She spoke to other academics. She said, how do these kids learn to be good communicators? Oh, it's just done by osmosis. They just learn because they're at the institution. And I thought, this is the problem right here. I I have the sense, gents, and again, please feel free to disagree, that being a good communicator is an ongoing concern that you're never going to say, I've ticked that off now. I'm an excellent communicator. Don't need to work on that anymore. I, I think the process of needing coaches, mentors, part of those relationships are at the core of them is how do you communicate with other people, whether you're consciously mm-hmm. aware of it or not? Does that does that ring true for both of you? Yes, no, caveats there? Absolutely. Absolutely. If I was to add to that, I think part of the, the problem with saying it happens by osmosis is not understanding that to every interaction, we bring our own bias. And that's why I think coaching and consulting and mentorship and accountability is all important because man, I, I'm decent at communication. I think my superpower is situational awareness, but I will walk out of at least one conversation every week and be like, oh, yeah, I missed the point on that one. Like I really messed up. And so then I'll lean into someone who I'm accountable to or someone in my close network and say, I had this conversation. Here's how it went. I felt good in the moment, but I felt dirty at the end. And this is why. And they're like, well, it sounded like it was fine. I said, oh, but there's this bit. I brought this bias into it. And I knew they brought their, they're like, oh yeah. Yeah. You were way yeah. off. And, and and it just takes that, it takes that uh, perspective. And I think you can't happen. It can't happen by osmosis. It has to happen by process. It has the trial and error and practicing and role play and all of that comes into it. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine used to ask a question. Um, you know, he's an expert in sales, and he said, "You take two phone calls. One on one person with the first person. If you do ask for the sale on the first call, you won't get it." And then that second person comes along and that person, if you don't ask for the sale on the first call, you won't get it. And do you know which one you're dealing with without being able to see them? Um, The other way, the other example I was thinking of was a conversation I was part of yesterday. You talked, Cam, about um, into every situation, we bring our own biases and our own preconceptions and, and all of that. This was a conversation where I was invited to talk about something that was new and exciting that I had just recently uh, either stumbled on or discovered or rediscovered and was the case of this particular thing. Um, and I, I let him have it, right? I trotted it out and immediately nearly everybody present seemed like they were dogpiling me. Like, like you, you don't have a plan. You're not ready. You don't, right. They were all, that's what, it, that's what I'm feeling like inside. So now I have to go because I'm not the type of person to, you know, pick on, pick up the phone and call someone and say, Hey, I didn't like the way you spoke to me there. Back off, dude. You know, I'm not going to do that to people. Right. So now I have to go and do a a personal excavation in order to get, dig myself out of this hole, because the way I want to go with this is just to clam up and say, well, I guess I'll never share that again. This is like, as true as it gets, it's a very tender spot for me. But as soon as I share it with people like who are supposed to, or uh, do actually care about me, 
what do I get? I get pushback, right? So all of this is going on behind the face of the person you're talking to. And you, and very often we're not aware of it because we're thinking, now the people on the other end of this conversation are trying to be helpful, right? They're trying to help me, you know, think through what I'm doing. The problem is it doesn't sound that way. I also, my bride and I love to joke. So she's the accountant numbers, very left brain logic. She's a software engineer, right? And so I've told her, look, you can be dead on accurate and still wrong at the same time. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, well, there's a human being on the other end of that conversation who isn't taking what you're saying as fact-based logic. They're taking it personally as, you know, you're making them look stupid. You sound like a government interrogator and those people aren't enjoying being waterboarded by your spreadsheet. I, I just, I could go on about this at length, but I, I think... I think you get the point. This is like, this is a super complex field. And that's why most people just pay it lip service because it's so hard to understand. Thank you for sharing that example. That That's probably the, the best example of you sending a message out and hoping that the person receiving it receives it with the intent that you had when you sent the message out. And what I think what you're saying, going to your first example, and I, I, I have no idea what the topic area was, but what I'm getting from this is that people you trust and admire and, and potentially love have said to you some things that rocked your ego a little bit. And potentially they didn't have that intention when they were saying what they were saying. They might've been thinking we're being as constructive as hell here, putting up what they think is reality for them, not thinking, hey, how is this going to be received? Now, uh, you probably did the right thing, but not reacting because as soon as you react and potentially get mad, they're thinking, oh, hang on, you came to us for help. Now you don't like what we've said. And then it goes to weird places that the conversation didn't need to go. And I, I only bring this up and I've seen this happen amongst friends. I've seen it happen in families. I've had it happen to me in a, in a workplace context where once those lines of communication get blurred or you start to attribute malevolence to the communication that's coming the other way. And, and you know what I mean by that, not bad intent, that it's really not there. It's it's about in some ways, and I'll, I'll use this example on me, how precious is your ego to take feedback? Because I'm, I'm a big believer and advocate for give it to me warts and all. But in saying that, I have to understand that I'm going to get some feedback that I don't like. And when I don't like that feedback, the last thing I need to do is to go to the defensive posture and go, what the hell do you know? You start defending yourself in ways that just sound silly once you start thinking about it. And so brilliant examples. And I guess when you, when if to just close off this idea of communication being a fundamental leadership skill, I really hadn't given this, and this is to my um, lasting shame. Until I had the conversation with you, Paul, I didn't give this a lot of thought about why it's so important to be a good communicator or at least check your practice. Now, Cam mentioned you need someone to keep you accountable and that sense of accountability when you're doing what it is that you do if you don't have a mentor or you don't have a peer network is kind of important because if, if you're going to get better at the art of being a leader, you need feedback. And what, what I'm finding in conversations with gentlemen like yourselves and the other conversations that I've had in the podcast leading to this is my thinking now is the best, sorry, the most effective leaders I think that are, that are getting around wherever you are on the planet are introspective practitioners that want to take feedback and want to look at being reflective about what it is that they do. I think they're the best, but they're a rarity because to be able to do that well, I think, is you have to be able to take a couple of hits to the ego. Go, yeah, mm -hmm. I did I did stuff that up, but this is how I'm going to get better. And I don't think too many people do that as a natural part of, of being a good leader. I think you need to have someone there who doesn't have skin in the game. And by that, I mean, they're not connected to your business. They're not connected to the thing that you're working on to give you fearless and frank information that that line comes from our public service here that public servants give fearless and frank information if you want to get that off people you have to be prepared to hear some things that you don't necessarily like this has been great now the next topic area cam and paul uh, love to get your views on this is roadblocks to better communication so cam if you had a hit list uh, i don't know if it's three or five or ten things but what do you see are those things that stop or impede better communication emotion the primacy of emotion like you let your emotions take over uh, that could be a huge that could be a huge barrier in communication another is 
it's tied into emotion is an existing relationship um, that you might not have a healthy relationship in. So I'll circle back to what I said at the beginning, like, like building, I didn't say building strong, like happy, go lucky, everything's great relationships. I said building effective relationships. You can still have a relationship with someone that maybe you don't really see eye to eye to, that maybe you often get into to heated conversation. You still have a relationship with them, but you can't let your emotions be the filter. We want to look through that empathy filter first. So if I was to say there's a biggest robot in communication, it's emotion, it's existing relationships that we haven't paid enough time to and put enough time into. And then if we circle back to our conversation with the solution based, like not entering a conversation as a listener, but as knowing it all, like feeling that people are coming to you every single time because they want an answer. Erica, like what you just said, you just went, you just shared a little bit and something popped into my head there. And it was like, you have to be ready to take feedback, whether it's easy to hear or not. I think strong leaders commit to growth. And when you commit to growth, you have to take ownership over that. And so if you're not willing to take ownership over your role in a conversation, that could also be a large barrier. Yeah, a lot of very similar things occurred to me as you were pointing that out, Eric. I thought of the example of martial arts and the best martial arts practitioners spend hour upon hour in a dojo sparring with other people. And as Bruce Lee would tell you, right, practice one move 10,000 times instead of 10,000 moves one time. And I did a little bit of martial arts when I was a kid. I didn't become extremely good at it, but the thing about a martial arts dojo is that it's a safe environment. There's a master, there's authority, there's respect. There's the whole thing of bowing before you enter the dojo. There's, uh, you know, there's correction that yes, there is, things can get tense in there. And yes, there is grappling. But at the end of the day, everybody's, you know, committed to, I'm not going to let my temper get the better of me. I'm not going to turn this into an animalistic kill em, you know, kill fest or anything like that. And when your opponent submits, right? Battle's over, bow, go back to the side, cool down, right? So we've, I think we got to think about communication in a very similar spiritual sense. And that is you need a dojo, the kind you're describing where there's a bunch of people. And this is what Cam and I are both a part of. We have a dojo where we go and we take our ideas and our thoughts and our feelings in many cases, but it's a trusted environment. So even though it can get rough and tumble in there, in the sense that the, the you know these other men will get up and say, hey, this, this isn't right, or you're thinking about this totally the wrong way, or you haven't even done your diligence on this. You haven't got any, you haven't done your homework, right? We come across that, it stings a little bit. Like I got blindsided by it yesterday. But it's not, but it's not like a crippling injury that we can't recover from because we know that we're operating in a controlled and loving environment. And so what I think is is hugely advantageous in this or any, you know, good peer group of like-minded people that you become a part of is you just get like one of the things I learned to do very early was I'm not going to show up before these guys and just throw out an idea without a plan to show them how I'm going to do it. Because the first thing they're going to ask is, well, how are you going to do this? And what's this going to look like? And what are you going to do when you get to this point? And how, what's your what's your backup plan? If I can't answer any of those questions, I'm going to just stand there looking like an idiot. So I became a better sparring partner because I forced myself to make the plan. Now, when the other guys in the group come in with what they're up to, I also know the questions to ask. And I'm a good sparring partner to them right? I'm forcing them to think about things they haven't considered. I'm forcing them to go back to the drawing board and say, you know what, I missed that detail. And over time, the practice of that in communication leads to a lot of peace as a leader, because you know the things that you have to have done or thought about in advance of actually presenting them to people. Thank you for sharing that. One thing that's come to mind that I'd, I'd like some some advice maybe and this this is something maybe the listeners would get something out of is when you talk about networks and peer networks all very powerful ways to uh to get things done and to check your practice and all the re- all that good stuff that i've i've found often particularly with uh the people that i've grown up with uh friends that i consider family that if i have the conversation about what's happening 
happening to me professionally they there is no hesitation they will unload what they think whatever whatever's in their brain and you, you typically take that with good humor and then you'll jive back and you don't feel uh, a sense of risk but in an environment where the peers are professional peers that you don't have that lived experience of a friendship with I would I take that and approach that in a very different way. And so is is that fear a natural fear of opening yourself up too much? Or is it that with people you've grown up with, particularly family and 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 close friends, that the knowledge that they you you know them, you know their intent is what allows you to happily put stuff out there and get that feedback and the jibing versus in a professional context. And is there some benefit to being in a peer network and just um, exposing your, well, it's not weakness, it's, it's sort of your, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Your vulnerability in a professional way to say, hey, there's some stuff I don't know. I really need some help here because um, Paul, to, to the best of my ability, I often am not good at drawing up plans. So I would probably go in uh, without that plan and hope I get something good out of it, knowing that there's going to be some issues with some people about, hey, hey, you don't seem prepared. But by the only level of preparedness I've got is that I've got a concern or an idea. I need help with that. Talk about two different types of environments. You have a family environment where people know you, and you have the, we talk about the no love and trust factor, you know, in business when somebody wants to invest with you. Well, here's the difference between family family, no love and trust. You know, love and trust them no matter what, but you don't always know, like, and trust them because, you know, like we're family and if that's okay. But when you're in a professional situation in your, let's say you're in a boardroom or you're in a conference or in a mastermind or whatever it might be, and you make yourself vulnerable, it's as much on the people in that room to develop their communication skills, to be able to offer you the validation, to know that they're caring about you. Like, Communication is a two-way street. You can't just worry about your conversation skills and your communication skills. If I just focused on like my insecurities of being vulnerable and open with the people around me, I will always stay in that space. But you can communicate with them and say, hey, even a little primer, like I will walk into a room with other administrators and be like, all right, this... I'm being a little bit vulnerable here. This is hard for me to say, but I'm really struggling with this. And what that primer does, it lets them know like, okay, I'm not going to punch Cam in the gut right now, but I'm going to frame my feedback, even though Cam is really wrong. I'm going to frame my feedback in a way that's more constructive. You'll find that when you when you prime conversations that way, it just, it, it breaks down some of those barriers that we spoke about earlier. And it kind of puts you at ease. And so if I was to say to Paul and to Eric, I said to you guys, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling with something right now. I might be a bit vulnerable. I wasn't going to say this to you, but I need to say it. This is going on. Or I have this idea. Or, and both of you are like, he's way out to lunch. Like he's, this is a bad idea. But I said that even you could come back at me and say like, well, I got this too. In my, my meeting yesterday, Paul, I got lit up a little bit in my hot seat, but I was ready to, I, I said I was vulnerable. I said I was willing to put it out there and I opened the door for them to give me honest feedback. And I can't walk away from that conversation taking anything personally. It will burn for a bit. I was I was ticked last night after I got off my hot seat with my group of guys, I was fired up. But today I'm like, they were right because emotion, emotion, emotion rules so much. Yeah. I don't, Eric, I don't know if that answered your question, but I, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, one other thing I'm going to add to that of the difference between family and a professional peer setting. And that is when you're in that dojo, if you're a white belt beginner uh, and you face another white belt beginner, or especially if you move a few steps up and then you face a white belt beginner, it, competing at that level gets easier and easier and easier and easier the higher you go. But if you're a white belt beginner and you face a black belt, he's, it's, it's going to look like he's not even trying. But you are going to learn some things. You're going to learn, first of all, I have no idea what I'm doing, so I have to work harder. I learned this, oddly enough, from uh, the first time I really made a conscious effort. I, I, I used to be quite fond of the spirit, uh, the sport of uh, racquetball. And I deliberately sought out the advanced players in the club I was going to and say, can I play against you? And they'd say, sure, I could use the target practice. <laughs> right. And uh, they, they, they beat me up. 
but a few of them had a, a teacher's coaching kind of heart enough. And they started showing me, look, you're not using your body in the shot. You're just trying to whip, crack a bull whip with your arm. That doesn't work in racquetball. You got to use your body to, to make that shot. I was like, okay, I tried it their way. And then I, then I started to get better shots. And then they said, now you're running around the court too much. You need to be moving to the center of the court and making your opponent chase the ball. I said, how do I do that? I said, well, you got to put, you got to make sure that you make that, that you make that shot go where you want it to go. And I'm like, that ball has a mind of its own. They're like, no, it doesn't. We control how that ball goes. Every time we hit that, we hit it. Watch, I'll make you run around this court. And he did. But over time I started to see, oh, I see. I can, I, there are places I know I can hit that ball where I know it'll land in the back of the court in the corner, which is where I want to make my opponent go so that I move to the center of it. Now I control the game. Same thing in business. Same thing with a peer group. You come in as a new entrepreneur two or three years in, you're just barely struggling trying to make money like, like in the groups that Cam and I are part of. And then you go up against a guy who's been in business 20 years and he's got seven or eight figure net worth. And that part of his life is really squared up. You're going to learn, you're going to learn better ways to do things. You're going to get perspective. But in the same way, right, that guy who's doing 10 times better than you in business might not be doing so good in his marriage, might not be doing so good as a father. And then you can, in the meantime, you're excelling in those areas. So he's going to learn off of you too. But with your family, now there are some families where this works great. Most families, my experience, my observation, it's not the right environment for it because you have to play with people who are better than you. You have to make their floor your ceiling until you get to that, that ceiling. And then that ceiling becomes your floor. And now you got to keep going up the ladder. I understand that in the business context, if you want to get better at anything, yeah, you have to play with, it's like um, the, the only analogy I can think of is when you're playing something like a board game, if you're going to get better at something like chess, whatever the game is, you can't play against someone who's a novice, destroy them every time and think you're a good player. You only get better by playing a more difficult opposition as, as time goes along. Cam, what I ask you, uh, and this is the final area of discussion, maybe to bring what we've been talking to together a little bit is around the, the COVID-19 issue that in your experience and, and you're, you're both dealing with leaders, you guys have understood what leadership looks like up until COVID. And now we've had two and a half, almost three years of COVID. Do you think comms in that context has been impacted, have have deficiencies in how we communicate just been exacerbated by COVID? Or what, what have you seen that says something about how we communicate through COVID from a, from a leader sort of slash business context? I can speak be I can speak to this knowing that our context in education was dramatically altered. We had sent everyone within two days, life went from like we were planning basketball is big here in Southern Alberta in March. And March 16th, 2020, we sent everyone home. It was actually that Saturday, the 14th, we had our local championship tournament to go to the provincial tournament, this big thing. And they blew the whistle. They called the game and they sent people home mid game. And from that point on, we sent everyone home. We sent kids home. We sent teachers home. Parents were at home with their kids. And in a time where you cannot be, be connected through proximity, you need to be connected through communication. And so in that time, it's like, how do we communicate as leaders with our families? And so we started a YouTube channel and sent weekly daily updates and made jokes and let them know it was okay and everything would be all right. And yet at the same time, we were connecting with staff and saying, hey, we support you. What can we do for you? Like, you need to take this chunk by chunk. You can't do it all at once. Like in hindsight, it was, I have a journal. I have a journal that I kept during that time. We thought the, the world was ending. We didn't know how serious this thing was. There was like a, there was this feeling that if you went out in public and you found out that you were in a massive box store and one person had it, everybody's going down. Like that was the messaging in the media, right? And so how do you temper that with teenage kids and teachers who are teaching them and the families that are now isolating at home with their families and as school leaders be able to communicate in a way that just kind of keeps the calm, keeps us focusing. And we, we shifted our focus. We had to shift our focus where we were talking about growth and learning and achievement, our filter then became safety, caring, growth, achievement, you know? And so safety was our, was our filter. And when people knew that, Hey, every decision that we are going to make is, is for 
the safety of our students and their families, the safety of our staff, the safety of the other people in our community. That's why we're making the decisions we're making. And then we're going to talk about the growth and learning for our students and our families. And we're going to do this all together because now we have, we have parents at home trying to put a kid, like answer questions for physics 30 and like grade 12 level physics here is pretty tough. It's pretty tough. And it's pretty tough to do remotely when you don't have access by proximity. So in my context, communication was super important throughout the the real depths of the pandemic, even though we're, we're still in it. Right. And so we altered for sure. I think communication was really important. And now that we're back together, thank goodness, we are back together in proximity, the skills that we've built to communicate as a staff, to communicate as coaches, to communicate as leaders have just, it just raised the game. Like we now communicate on a level that we didn't communicate before, but then, then the question becomes, how do we push ourselves to get better? Like, what are we missing? Where did we hit the mark? Where did we miss the mark? Then we do have to improve on today. And so that's our, that's our filter now as leaders. Yeah. And for me, it, um, it took a different tack. I was uh, working online from home before the, uh, everything shut down in, in early 2020. So I was, I, I, I was pretty used to things like that, to, to being in that kind of a work environment already had been in it for a couple of years. I liked that the world was finally coming online via Zoom and people who would have previously scoffed at the idea of having a virtual meeting and insisted I come into their office, particularly anything to do with taxes, <laughs> were now willing to have a digital meeting, which would save me time. But I think probably one of the most important lessons that I took from that, one of the things that improved for me the most personally was that I became a lot more discerning about who I was going to give my energy to. And this is a little bit, this is, this is quite a bit beneath the surface of a good communicator, but I do think it's going to influence you when you're trying to communicate, because if you are taking in boatload after boatload of toxicity and drama and crisis and all of this stuff day after day after day, because you, you know, everybody's checking the headlines and watching the TV, listening to whatever they you know, wherever they're getting their, their information from. Uh, I just took a look at that and said, you know what, I think I think I have found the time where I'm getting off of the news media's carousel, and I'm not getting back on, not the way they're presently constituted. And that's, that's considering all forms of new news media, not just the ones that I disagree with, right, from a philosophical standpoint, it includes the ones I agree with as well. And uh, it was around this time, March of 2021, a year afterward, that a couple of things began to fundamentally shift for me. And I remember this distinctly. My, my bride said to me one day, do you want to hear the latest COVID updates? And I turned to her and I said, no, actually, I don't. Don't tell me what they are. I want to know. Why? Because they're going to change tomorrow anyway. And there's nothing I can do about them. They're being made from citadels far beyond my reach. I have no power to influence it. I don't even, I don't want, but I don't, I know I don't want it in my system. I, I don't want it in my soul. I don't want it affecting my ability to function. And not long after that, or around that same time, was the day that I permanently said, okay, I, I'm not saying that the journalists are sitting around in their newsrooms thinking, how can we make Edwards feel bad today? I don't think that's what they do, right? What I do think they do is a cumulative body of work that feels very much like gaslighting from a narcissist, right? It is a continual assault on your soul over and over and over again. Panic, panic, panic. A outrage, outrage, outrage. I, can you believe what so-and-so said about so-and-so about what they said? And I feel like I'm in middle school, right? And I, and I said, I'm, I'm not taking this abuse. I don't have to watch this. I don't have to listen to it. I don't have to read it. I don't have to let it in my life. If it's that important, it'll find its way to me. And believe it or not, that has made, that has, that has been part and parcel because I have sat out the entire last year of the news. I have no idea what's going on anywhere in the world. And life is just as good as it was. <laughs> in fact, it's better because I don't know, because there's nothing I can do about it. Just a thought, um, maybe a bit more philosophical than, than uh, practical hands-on, but consider tuning, tuning them out is, is my, <laughs> my advice. Unless you are, you know, you're by your profession, you just can't, you can't avoid it. You have to know what's going on. So I was, was going to use the word paranoid there, Mr. Edwards. No, no one's trying to make you feel that way, but it, <laughs> it's interesting the way that you couch that because I, it hasn't impacted my family yet. Thankfully, we've we've had the flu and we've been ill. Like people get through the year, you know, people get sick, kids get sick, you get sick, but none of us have had COVID. And I did what you suggested, maybe not to the same degree. I just I still watched the media feeds that were of interest to me because I, I have to understand the political 
landscape for the job that I do do full time. So that's where my focus was. But anything COVID I put to the side because I have a tendency to catastrophize if I'm not careful with myself. And so COVID is the great enabler for that. So I left it to one side, but my wife was very much sucked into watching the TV every day and tracking the numbers. And our media in Australia are very much concentrated on Australia, obviously, but the feed of American TV coming in here and the numbers and then comparing that to Europe and other places. And what about the third world? And what about can't get enough vaccines done? Like you could easily curl up in a corner and be panicked listening to that Mm -hmm. stuff, thinking the world is coming to an end if you didn't know any better. And yeah, I have to say, I agree with everything that you both said. believe they're after Perez in any one one specific way or another, but you could feel that way because all you get through a pandemic, through this one, not that I've lived through other pandemics, but this, this whole process around comms and talking to people, and I think the media talk at you, not with you, is yeah. something to be aware of. And that good communication, I think Cam said it best, it's a two-way thing. When you're watching the TV or watching a news feed, you're only getting the information coming one way. It's a one-way street, and I, I, I firmly believe we will see people writing up their experiences of this for decades to come because I think it highlighted our un- globally this is for I think all sectors of the economy for civil society we weren't prepared for what this meant for us early on and we had to adapt very quickly and the only only thing I can point to of seeing that it was done well in my community was how the school responded to COVID I just want to touch on the importance of communication with everything that went on. Paul just touched on it. You touched on it with how the school communicated with you. When we communicated with people, here's the, here's the importance of communication right now in a hopefully post COVID world, but like, you know what I mean? Like we're moving out of it. The importance in communication right now is we've never been more aware of competing perspectives and bias and prejudice. And so when you become like, we live in a polarized world right now, it's you're either here or you're there, your agreement or your disagreement. And as a leader, your job is not to come into that and prove the other person wrong or to convert them to your viewpoint. Your view as leaders to come into that conversation, be aware of everybody's going to have maybe a different perspective. Uh, They might have a different bias. You have one, but to know that the purpose of that communication is to get you on the same page. We didn't reframe our messaging to safety first, then growth and learning, because we wanted people to say, hey, look what we're doing. But we knew that when you made the lens safety, everybody could be in agreement. Everyone wanted their families safe. Everyone wanted their kids to be safe. Whether they agreed with what was going on, they thought it was fake, whatever, it doesn't matter. When you say, we don't know what's going on, but what we know is that our intention is to keep you safe. And this is why we're making these decisions. It made communication so much easier. We didn't take a side. There's people, 170 people on staff. There's a lot of competing viewpoints. But when you say, we are here to keep you safe, that's hard to disagree with. And then you can get into conversations. But when you, in a post-COVID world right now, I think one thing that I've learned as a leader is that every conversation, I can choose how I process it. I can choose what I, I digest and what I say, nope, that's not for me. And then I need to be aware that the other person can do the same. I was going to add something to that. I think the, the crappiest job to have had at the height of this in the school community would have been our principal because she's she would have to wear the the um, emotional impact of kids getting sick, staff getting sick. And I'm sure she had very little or very few people to reach out to amongst her professional cohort because she has to be seen as the, and this is my perspective, I'm not saying she said this, I think school principal has to be the fearless leader going out and and directing where this is all going. So I often wonder where do principals go to download all of their issues? I'm, I'm sure they've got their own peer networks, but it's often I ask things like when a doctor's sick, who does a doctor go and see? Because you're not going to self-diagnose. So it's um, being able to reach out at times like this is important. And I think I've seen that from a positive perspective because you both um, have alluded to both positive and negatives. I think from a positive perspective, people have been in some way very happy to work in new and different ways and others 
leaders have been sort of dragged kicking and screaming. But I think the value of different ways of working and communicating has now come to the fore in ways that it wasn't there before. So much so that I think the world of work has changed how we recruit people. If you see ads for jobs now, and I've got some friends that are actively looking for work, they say, hey, Eric, what do you think of this? Should I go for this? And you read the ad and it'll have somewhere in there hybrid work considered or work from home options considered or completely remote. I don't remember seeing any of that language pre-COVID. You work in an office and that's where you're going to bloody work or you don't have a job. And so there's some things that we, I think we took as for granted now that have changed. And one, hopefully at some point down the track, Cam, maybe we can set up a a panel to discuss this communication in that world of the great resignation. I'd really love to talk to some people around this idea that is the great resignation really a thing or is it, is it something else? And I think comms comes into that as well, because uh, I, I really believe that the power in that the hiring interview setting is now more with the applicant than Mm -hmm. the people hiring, because now people are losing talent and people are looking around for going, I want a workplace that recognizes that I've got some fears around being in an office space. I've got kids. I might be looking after elderly parents. I might have a relative potentially immunocompromised. These are things that employers now have to deal with in a way that they didn't have to deal with before. So we're entering into a very strange and different looking world of work. Not completely, again, not to catastrophize, but the landscape has got a little bit different, I would would suggest. Gentlemen, this has been an amazing conversation. Cameron, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So we've been listening to Cameron Hall and one of my takeaways, Paul, around this discussion, particularly about what makes for more effective communication is two things. I'll break this up into two elements. One is being present, but two, it's stopping yourself from just talking for the sake of talking and really listening to what the person has said to you. And if you've got a potentially heated discussion coming, you can take away a lot of the fire from the discussion by just shutting your mouth and listening to what the person has to say. What what were your thoughts on that? As our listeners may have, uh, have noticed there, Eric, I did not interrupt or even say a word while you were getting your thoughts off your chest. And that frankly takes a lot of practice for the average person is used to interrupting to say, No, but what about what about what I want to say? What about what I want to say? I go back to the same scene that I mentioned in the interview there. If you watch this interaction in Casino Royale, the James Bond movie between James Bond and M, right? When she's upset about what he's done and he's broken into her apartment and she throws a fit at him and, you know, gets mad and threatens to fire him and tells him he's, he's caused an international incident. Then the word count is enormously higher for, for M in that scene than it is for Bond. He just sits there and he, he doesn't ignore her. He's making eye contact, but he, she, he just shows that he's listening. And when he speaks, he doesn't say much, but he does say important things. He does acknowledge what she says. He doesn't argue or push back. He does a little bit, but, but, but overall he's letting her, letting the, and in this case, he's not, he, you know, this is his superior, but he's clearly controlling the conversation in the spiritual realm. So positionally, he's outranked, but spiritually, he's not. And he's controlling the conversation benevolently and with humility and with respect for what she's saying. And I just think there's so much you can learn from a scene like that. And I think so few people, especially under, in a pressure, tension-filled conversation like that, so few people have the presence of mind to keep cool, let the let the blowback happen, take the heat, and then respond to it in an intelligent and thoughtful way. Yeah, agreed. And that's the definitely got that that message from how Cameron does communication. And I, I would encourage anyone who's listened to the podcast to look at the podcast description, have a look what Cameron is doing, have a look at what you're doing, Paul, in, in your work around comms and leadership. And again, thank you for your time, mate. This has been great. And this is the first of what I'm hoping will be long-term series looking at comms, because just from this discussion alone, I think there's a lot to unpack and uh, we will be reaching out to more guests to participate. So thank you again, Paul. Great to be with you, Eric. We'll be looking forward to the next one. Thanks, everyone. This has been Talking Leadership. Thank you for following us, and we'll catch everyone on the next podcast.